Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Very well? Thanks for answering me. It's kind of hard to ask a question to a lot of people that really can't give you an answer, you know, but uh, anyway. No good. Hopefully everybody's enjoyed the weekend. Hopefully everybody's going to come back to the potluck tonight and enjoy that too. That should be fun. Um, we've had a pretty good weekend. Me and Tracy had a, uh, had a date night Friday night. And man, we're, we're wild and crazy. We got some takeout and we watched a movie. <laughs> and we watched, uh, it's called uh, An American Underdog. It's the Kurt Warner story. Uh, with, you know, Kurt Warner, the guy who played quarterback for the Rams. It was a really good movie. You know, it only took us 10 years to find a movie that we both like. <laughs> only 10 years. What are we going to learn in the next 10 years? But it was a good movie, and it really kind of shows, uh, you know, it shows uh, him, you know, finishing college ball and the, the kind of journey God takes him on through a bunch of different things. And finally, he ends up getting and making it to the NFL. And it was really good. If you guys haven't seen it, it's a, it's a good thing to see. So we're going to be in Joshua like we've been in for the last you know, month or so now. We're going to be in Joshua 5, but I'm going to hit Joshua 1 uh, briefly before we get started. And I got a, got a question for you guys. How do we follow the leading of God? How do we follow God's leading? Well, the Israelites are following God's leading right now as we walk through Joshua. He's leading them into the promised land. How do we do that? We're all led, if we're a Christian, uh, if you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, He's led you somewhere. He's led us many places we're not even aware that He's leading us. Uh, but sometimes He intentionally puts something on our heart to lead us toward how do we follow God's leading in that. So let's go to the Lord before we get into it. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You so much for all that You've given us. I thank especially for Your Son, Jesus Christ, and the salvation we find in His name. I thank You that we can call ourselves a child of God because of what he has done for us on the cross. Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for, I thank you for calling us into your people, Lord. I thank you for this morning, the opportunity we have to hear your word. And we know that just as the rain falls and doesn't return to heaven, but it waters the ground, we know that your word goes out and doesn't return to you void. So Lord, send your word out this morning and use it in the fashion in which you have sent it. I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this church. Be with us this morning and strengthen us so that we can glorify you, for you are worthy of glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Joshua 1, verse 8. This is God speaking to Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it, day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So God is speaking to Joshua. He's leading them into the promised land. Some principles of following God's leading. You see a couple of them here. First one, he says, the book of the law, don't let it depart from you. Don't let it depart from your mouth. Read it, know it, and then obey it, right? Nobody <clears throat> will ever obey 
God's word perfectly. Nobody will even come close to obeying God's word perfectly. Thank God that Jesus has obeyed God's word perfectly in our, in our place. But we're still called to know it and to walk in it, right? So know what he has spoken in general and follow it. And then he says, have I not commanded you? Don't be afraid. If you feel that God has led you into a place that doesn't look like doesn't look like it's safe, maybe, or doesn't look like it's uh, looks differently than what you think it might look like. But if God has said, this is where you're supposed to go, then go there without fear. We're not given a spirit of fear. We're given instead a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. So if God has led you somewhere, then walk forward in his confidence, not in the confidence of yourself. You know, uh, talking about uh, knowing the law and doing it. So I'm driving to work this I'm driving to work, sorry, driving to church this morning and I'm going down uh, Citrus Park, right? The new extension of Citrus Park. And, you know, it's, there's like no traffic on it most of the time, I guess, maybe during, except during school hours or something. And it's real tempting to go a little faster than the speed limit is posted, right? The speed limit is 40. And as I turn on to it, as soon as I turn on to it off of Sheldon, I see somebody pulled over and getting a ticket on the side of the road. And then as soon as I see that, just a little bit further down the road, I see another cop driving the opposite direction. And I'm like, I know that it's 40. I think I'm actually going to drive 40 this time. That's what the law says. I'm going to try uh, and do it obediently. You know, God calls us to the same thing in his word. Let's know what it says, and then let's uh, walk in it, right? And have no fear we walk. We walk in his confidence, not ours. So we're going to read uh, part out of Joshua chapter 5. If you remember <clears throat> Joshua 1, God calls Joshua. Uh, chapter 2, he sends the spies into Jericho. Chapter 3, they all go across the river uh, into the promised land. Chapter 4, they set up a memorial, which brings us up to chapter 5, which is where we'll be today. But I want us to think a little bit about the Israelites' perspective as they're going into this situation I remember they've spent 40 years in the wilderness. Everybody that was 20 and above has died in the wilderness. So everybody that's coming into the promised land, either all they've ever known was the wilderness, or they were young enough when it happened that they don't probably have a real strong memory of Egypt or anything before the wilderness. So pretty much everybody going into this new promised land, <clears throat> they're leaving what they've known their entire lives. You know, you think about their situation in the wilderness. They spend 40 years there. You know, there's plenty of good things that God does to them in the wilderness, but a lot of it <clears throat> would have been just 40 years of routine, of daily, uh, daily necessities. You know, you think about life in general. We can get so bogged down in just daily routine. Oh, I got to get up. It's 5.30. Get up and go to work again. Oh, it's got to come home. It's 5.30 p.m. I got to go home and eat dinner. Oh, we got to do homework and oh, I got to get ready to do it again. And it can just wear you out. The daily routine of just wearing you out. <clears throat> the Israelites have had that same daily routine pretty much their entire lives. Oh, it's the morning. Go get some manna. Oh, it's the evening. Go get some more manna. Oh, it's the Sabbath. Don't go get any manna. Oh, it's Monday again. Okay, go get some manna. 40 years they would have had this situation. They would have been living the exact same, you know, it's almost like Groundhog Day. Exact same thing over and over and over again for 40 years. That's all a lot of these people would have known or remembered. <clears throat> they would have known the promise of bringing them into the land of Canaan. They would have known that. I mean, God had spoken out to Moses. Moses had spoken out to the congregation. But it would have been worn out after that time frame. Oh, I know that he said, maybe he said it was 40 years. Maybe he meant it was 
40 times 10. Maybe it means, maybe it means 400 years. You know, maybe he was just symbolic. I don't know. Maybe we're not actually, we're never going to get there. I know he said that. We're never going to get there. And it would have been something where they just said repeatedly over and over. It felt like it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. This is our life, right? This is what we have allocated to us. But then all of a sudden, Moses dies. Moses dies. He probably dies in about January, toward the end of January. They spend 30 days mourning for him in the wilderness. There's February. By the 14th of the first month, which their first month is Nisan, which corresponds to kind of March, April time frame. By the second week of that first month, they're in the promised land observing Passover. So over the span of maybe three months, their entire world changes. Everything they had known is not, it's, they've left it behind. They're not living where they've lived. They're not eating what they're, I mean, the manna ceased. They're going to eat grain of the land. They're not living where they live. They're not eating the food they had before. They're, they're not stable. They're moving forward into a place that they really have no idea what they're getting into. <clears throat> and you think about how this changes all of a sudden in just kind of a short time frame. Their entire life just is flipped upside down. You think about these times in which God may have done that in your life. I would think about the way like I say, we watched an American underdog with Kurt Warner and you watch the movie and it shows him getting out of college and he doesn't get drafted. And then he signs with the Packers and they cut him after like a day and then he doesn't have a job and then he's working at the grocery and then he's doing all these other things, trying to keep hope alive. And he's, you know, he's like, man, it's never going to happen. I'm never going to get there. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. <clears throat> Hopefully I'm not spoiling the, the movie for anybody. <laughs> Sorry. It is a good movie. <clears throat> Anyway, then all of a sudden, out of the blue, Dick Vermeil calls him up and says, hey, why don't you come play for the Rams? Come on out. Let's try out. And all of a sudden, he's on the Rams. And then all of a sudden, the uh, Trent Green, the quarterback, the starting quarterback, goes down with a knee injury. And all of a sudden, he's under center on the field in the NFL for the Rams. And Ray Lewis is staring across the line of scrimmage at him, talking trash. He's got to be like, oh, my goodness, is this really happening? Am I really like on the field? Is that Ray Lewis that's talking to me right now? It's got to be almost surreal for him. All of a sudden, his entire world has been turned upside down into this awesome and also terrifying situation. I mean, he's probably in awe of that situation. He's also probably scared to death. Oh, my goodness, can I handle this? I remember thinking, I mean, as I've been reading kind of through Joshua, you know, I mean, it's an invasion. They're invading another land. Um, In 2003, I uh, was in the Marine Corps. I took part in the invasion of Iraq. And I can remember after I signed up, you know, being in and, you know, people talking about getting deployed to this place or that place and 9-11 happens and still talking about this or that or what might happen. And I'm like, eh, we're never going to go anywhere. We're never going to go anywhere. It's not going to happen. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, the command comes down from on high, hey, pack your stuff. It's time to go. Nope. Now all of a sudden we're getting on a plane. Now all of a sudden we're getting off the plane in, into Kuwait. Now all of a sudden I'm standing at the border of Iraq looking north into the desert and seeing these big like tank obstacles in front of us. And I look to my left and as far as I can see is tanks and armored vehicles and Humvees and guys with machine guns. And I look this way and all I can see is tanks and armored vehicles and, and guys with guns and, and all kind of different military apparel. The whole Marine Corps division is, a, is, a, is spread out online ready to assault forward. And then there's a there's a, a Scud missile attack from north of the border, and it lands, and everybody goes, gas, gas, gas. It's a sign for gas, and all of a sudden, you, I pull my gas mask out, and I put it on, and I'm, I'm tightening it down. I had a, I can remember, <laughs> I had a brownie. I had a, I'd saved this brownie <laughs> to eat before we crossed. <laughs> it 
This is just kind of funny. I saved this brownie to eat, an MRE brownie, before we crossed the border, and I was in the middle of eating it when the missile came in, and I had to spit it out and drop it in the dirt and put my gas mask on. I'm like, are you kidding me? I was going to eat that last thing, but I'm putting it on, and I'm cinching my gas mask down, and I'm like, is this even real? Is this even happening? I'm like about to invade another country. It's just, it's awesome, and it's terrifying, and you're like, I can't even, this has got to be a dream. I don't even know what's happening. Your entire world is getting turned upside down. That's where the Israelites are right now as they move into Canaan. Their entire world in the span of a short couple of months has been turned upside down, and they have no idea where their food's going to come from, where their security's going to come from, where they're going to live, where they're, you know, anything. Their entire world has been flipped upside down, and they're in this place that they've heard about and thought about and said, oh, it's never going to happen for 40 years, and all of a sudden it's there. Bam. God has put you there. God's leading them. And keep that understanding of their kind of emotional, you know, situation as we walk through this. They're, they're awe-inspired and they're terrified probably all at once. Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe God's leading you somewhere and you feel in that same kind of capacity uh, the awe of God and what He can do and also the fear of not knowing what to do at the same time. That's why God says... Fear not, right? Do not fear. All right, so chapter 5, and a lot of good stuff happens in chapter 5. We're not going to read the whole thing. They've come across the river, just kind of to give a little brief overview. They've come across uh, the Jordan River. They're in the promised land. They left the wilderness behind them. That's their place of disobedience, right? They're stuck in the wilderness because of their disobedience. They come across the the river into the promised land. They're in that place of blessing of the Lord, right? The first thing they do is they have everybody get circumcised, which is the sign of the covenant. Circumcision doesn't put them in the covenant with God. They're already in the promised land. Circumcision is just a sign that they're in it, right? We don't don't do the same method today in church. We baptize, right? We had a baptism this morning. It was was pretty neat. The father of the girl got baptized. His, uh, His name was C.J., like, oh, hey, another CJ. That's awesome. I don't meet too many guys named CJ. It was exciting for me. <clears throat> Baptism uh, is the way in which uh, we show the sign of the covenant. And it sort of identifies, but there's a lot of things that it does, but it sort of identifies us with Christ. I was at a, a track meet on Friday, Friday morning, and uh, my daughter was running the two-mile uh, the two-mile race, you know, and there's like 12 or, or 15 girls out there competing, and they've all got their, you know, school uniform on, whether it's Sickles or Alonzo or King or whoever else, except for two of them. Two of them were just wearing, like, T-shirt and shorts. I'm like, well, I, I have no idea who you're running for. You're obviously on a team because you're on the track getting ready to run, but I have no idea who you're for because you're not wearing a uniform, you know. If we're on the team... We should be proud to identify with Christ. If we're on Christ's team, we should be proud of that. I mean, we got, uh, you know, folks around here today wearing these West Town Serve shirts uh, sort of to identify them as people you can go to and and look for ways to get plugged into the church. Um, They're wearing these shirts to identify them as, as their role, right? We should be proud to identify ourselves with Christ, and we do that through baptism. And, you know, maybe you've never been baptized, or maybe you have a family member that's never been baptized, and I don't want to, you know, beat the 
beat you over the head with the Bible about it. I know there's a lot of reasons why people would refrain from that. But I just would like to say that it's important. And if you haven't been, and you're a Christian, you need to be. It identifies us with Christ. The next thing they do after they, uh, after they all get circumcised, <clears throat> they then observe the Passover. Now, if you remember, go read Exodus, right? Exodus 12 and, and following. The Passover was a one-time event, right? It was the Israelites stuck in slavery in Egypt. The angel of God uh, comes across Egypt and pours out his judgment upon the Egyptians. But he had already spoken to Israel, of course. He says, hey, uh, take a lamb, uh, kill it, put the blood on, on the two sides of the post and on the top of your doorpost, and that will make me pass over. My judgment will not come upon you, right? That was a one a one-time event, right? But Morgan said it last week, we're forgetful. We don't remember things very easily. So God implemented the Passover for one, one of the purposes of that is for them to celebrate every year and to remember what God had already done for them, right? Well, we do the same. We don't do Passover anymore. We do communion. Communion is the same thing. It is something that's already been accomplished. It's a one-time event that Christ has paid the penalty for all of our sin, right? All of his people, the penalty of sin has been taken care of. That penalty no longer exists for you or I if we are in Christ. But we do this, and we do it once a month, you know? We do it so that we can remember what he has accomplished for us already. So that's what they do. The first thing that they get into the land, they all get circumcised, and then they all carry out the Passover, which if you think about this from like a, like a military standpoint, uh, the first thing you do when you get into enemy territory probably wouldn't be these two things. If you were a general in the army today planning the invasion of some other some other place, you probably wouldn't take all of your all of your fighters and say, we're going to give you a surgical procedure that renders you ineffective for a couple of days. <laughs> you probably wouldn't do that, but that's what they do. Following God's leading is not necessarily, probably will not look like what the world says should be, uh, should be, right? It's probably not going to look like what the world says. So they come across the river, um, <clears throat> they set up the memorial stones, like Morgan talked about. Uh, they circumcise all the males, they all observe the Passover. And that brings us up to verse 13. And I want you to notice just as they get to the end of the Passover, the manna stops. They will no longer get any manna from here on out. Now they have the food that is growing in the land. And that brings us up to verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, fell over and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So Joshua is by Jericho. You know, the way I kind of see this, I like this little passage here. Uh, the way I kind of see this playing out 
Um, if you've seen Gladiator, you know the movie Gladiator, uh, Russell Crowe, before all of his battles, he goes and like scoops up a handful of dirt, you know, and he's like smelling it and rubbing it through his hand and kind of, you know, getting himself ready. Yeah, it's time to go do business, you know. <clears throat> I kind of see Joshua doing, that's how the scene plays out in my head. Joshua's like scooped up a handful of dirt and he's getting himself ready to, to go do what he's got to do. But remember the, the situation that the Israelites are in, right? They're in the situation that is awesome and terrifying, and they're in over their head. Joshua really is no different. In some ways, Joshua probably has uh, greater awe and fear in this situation than everybody else. Joshua also has never been in a situation. Now, you think about what's happened for the last 40 years. Moses was always there. Moses is dead now. Moses was always there. The man who... God used to bring the Israelites across the Red Sea. The man who came down and smashed the golden calf and, and put it in the water and called all the Levites to him to put their sword on. Uh, the man who went up and spoke with God on the mountain face to face as a friend speaks with his friend. And he came down and he's so, he's so full of the glory of God that his face is just shining brightly and nobody, everybody's even afraid to look at him. So he's got to get a veil and put this veil on just to talk to people. <clears throat> that guy, right? That guy was always there for Joshua to look to when he didn't know what was going on. He always had somebody else to pass the buck to when it came time to make a bad decision or came time to make a hard decision, excuse me. Moses is gone now. The buck stops with Joshua. He's got to figure out everything. And he's got almost 2 million people. That's what a lot of people think came out of Egypt. Roughly 2 million people came out of Egypt. So it would have been a similar number here, right? 2 million people, hundreds of thousands of parents that don't know where they're going to feed their kid, don't know where their kid's going to live, don't know how they're going to protect their kid. I mean, they're in a land, literally, that is crawling with people that don't like the Israelites, right? Tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of parents that don't have those answers for their children and are nervous about it, they're all looking at Joshua. What are we going to do? What do we do, Joshua? How are we going to feed ourselves? How are we going to protect ourselves? How are we going to move forward and live? What are we doing? Joshua has nobody to turn to. It's all on him, right? And thankfully, it's not on him. It's on God. But that's how he would have felt. What do I do with this? So he's in a new position of responsibility. He's got to figure out. I mean, you think about the manna. They've been getting manna twice a day, six days a week for 40 years. And it was supernatural. God supernaturally provided that. And you read at the beginning, they don't trust God and they take too much and all these other things. But they get used to it. Again, this is, that's what people would have known their entire lives. If we got the same check in the mail every single day for 40 years, even if it was supernatural, which all of it is God's providence, but even if it's some kind of supernatural providence, if we got the same check in the mail every day for 40 years, you know what we do? We'd get comfortable with that. We'd say, oh, well, that's what we're going to get tomorrow, right? But all of a sudden, that's taken away. And yeah, there's food growing in the promised land. There's a lot of good food growing there. But guess what? Most of that stuff belongs to a bunch of peoples that don't like you. And you got to figure out how you're going to get that. He's in a situation that he's never been in before, uh, trying to lead these people, trying to provide for these people. He's also in a new situation militarily. I mean, Joshua's a general. He's been you know, leading the Israelites in, in battle for a long time. But every time you see him in battle prior to this, it's all defensive, right? The Malachites come out and attack him. He's got to defend them. Uh, Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and his people, they come out. He's got to, he's got to defend against those people, Og, the giant king, they say uh, this guy, you know, Deuteronomy says he had a, 
a bedstead that was made of iron and it was 13 feet long. This dude was a big guy. <laughs> and it's funny when it starts talking about this guy, you know what God says? He says, do not fear him. Don't fear. We trust and have confidence in God. Don't fear this guy. I know he's 12 feet tall and he's got a tree for a, for a, for a weapon. Don't be afraid. All of those things that Joshua had to contend with were defensive. He's got to do something now he's never done before. He has nobody in his army that's ever done it before, and he's got to figure out what to do. So if he's standing here, let's say he's standing there picking up dirt and looking at Jericho, it's a pretty formidable place if you're going to try and attack it with a bunch of soldiers that have never attacked a city before. I mean, the first thing, I mean, you read different archaeologists have different opinions. Uh, They vary a little bit. But the first thing he would have gotten to was not the wall. The first thing he would have got to was a moat. And the moat would have been roughly six feet across and six feet down. And unless you're an Olympic sprinter with Nikes on, you're not jumping across that thing. It's just not going to happen. Once you get across that... Then you had to get up the wall. The wall would have been, you know, 18 to 20 feet high. And on top of the wall, there would have been archers shooting bow and arrows at you and throwing big old rocks on your head. I mean, you're just not getting over the wall, right? And if you're able to get across the moat and get across the wall without being shot and having your head broken by a rock, then you can start fighting the bad guys, right? It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been an easy situation, particularly for somebody who had never done it with a bunch of people who had never done it. So Joshua is probably in this situation saying, I have... I got no idea what I'm doing here. I got no idea. Now, what Joshua could have done, right? God had given them this kind of broad directive. You know, you go back to chapter one, you see God says, all right, Joshua, go, go take out the promised land and you'll have victory. He hasn't really given many specifics to his task when it comes to conquering the promised land. He doesn't mention Jericho at all. Joshua hasn't been told by this point uh, that Jericho is even the place he's supposed to be at. So what he could have done is he could have come across the river and had everybody circumcised and observed the Passover and just sat there and said, all right, well, I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to do. I'll just wait for God to come tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do. That's what he could have done. But he didn't. Joshua is walking in the light of the revelation that he has been given. He's walking in light of what he does know. God's told him, go into Canaan and conquer it. God hasn't told him every detail, but he's told him enough that Joshua can move forward. God's not going to give us everything we didn't know if we're not going to obey the first thing he tells us. He's not going to tell us step six and seven and eight if we haven't obeyed step one. Think about, you know, I've been able to teach, uh, teach my kids to drive some in the last couple of years. I'm not going to teach them to take a left on a four-lane divided highway if they haven't learned to turn on the engine and back out of the driveway. You're just not. If God has told you one thing, hey, this is where I want you to move, and you haven't moved there, he has no reason to tell you anything further. Joshua says, I know that I'm supposed to be going into Canaan. I know that I'm supposed to be doing something here when it comes to conquest, so I'm going there. I'm going to put myself in position to receive more leading from God. There's a verse in in Mark that I'm going to read. Mark chapter 4, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. Mark 4, verse 24, he says, Then he said to them, Jesus to the disciples, Take heed what you hear. Pay attention what you hear. Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, 
to him more will be given, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. He says, take heed to what you hear. To the extent that you use what I tell you, I'll tell you some more. If you use what I tell you, I'll keep giving you more of it. If I tell you something and you just say, I don't want to deal with it, well, there's no reason for me to tell you anymore. Are you following God's leading in, in any area of your life? Maybe it's in ministry, right? Maybe, uh, maybe you're in leadership at a church where you've just lost the senior pastor and you don't know exactly how to, how to go forward. Maybe you're a volunteer in ministry, but you've moved from being a volunteer to being a staff member and now you have not only just the volunteer ministry type stuff, you've also got all these other things you've got to deal with in that capacity, and you don't really know how to do it. Maybe it's outside of the church itself. Maybe it's at work, or maybe it's in a relationship, or maybe it's, it could be in anything. Maybe it's in a sport, <clears throat> and God has led you to a certain situation there. Follow what he has given you already, and he will give you more. That's what he says. That's what Jesus says. Joshua is operating under what he knows to do and he's put himself in position for God to tell him more. All right. So Joshua's in front of Jericho. <clears throat> he's trying to figure this, this whole thing out. And then this big soldier comes walking up with a sword. And you read, uh, you know, you read different commentaries. Uh, some people will tell you this is an angel. I think very clearly that this is God. This is God showing up, probably the Son of God, in, a, in what you call a pre-incarnate state, showing up to encourage Joshua in this moment. So God comes walking up to him. Joshua doesn't recognize who it is at first, but he's a soldier. I mean, when you're in war and somebody's coming at you that you don't know who it is, you, gotta, you give them a, a challenge, right? A military challenge. That's what Joshua does. Are you on my team? Are you on their team? Are you friendly or an enemy? <clears throat> That's what he gives him. And God responds. Look at the way he responds. He said, No. No, Joshua, I don't think you understand. This isn't your team. This is my team. You're not the one that's running this show. I am. You know, I think we have done perhaps a, maybe a poor job in America of this. I think we, we tend to do this a lot. I've done this before. Most, a lot of us have probably done this before. We kind of paint God sometimes as this, you know, benevolent grandfather that just wants us to be happy, says, here's a hundred bucks. You just wash the windows for 20 minutes. Here's a hundred dollars for it. There you go. Or, uh, you know, this, sometimes we think of him as just this genie, like, oh, I really want this, or I really want that, or I really want whatever it is. Lord, just, just help me out and figure it out for me, right? Sometimes we kind of have that attitude that we want God to do our will. But that's not the way this, it's not the way this works. God is certainly, he is certainly, and I don't want to diminish this, he is certainly a father that loves his children. That is the best, probably, picture, I would say, of God uh, that you can see, right? He, he loves his children. He wants good for his children. He provides for his children. I don't want to diminish that at all. But what he also is, and this is something that we probably don't emphasize enough, is that he's a king that is supposed to be obeyed. He's the king of all of creation, now, no one will ever obey God perfectly. Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly. And because Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly, His record is given to us. Thank God. But that doesn't mean that because Jesus obeyed perfectly for us, we just say, oh, well, whatever, we don't have to do it. No, God is calling us 
into service for him. And you know, I really, I really believe this. God's the ultimate good steward, right? He's the ultimate good steward. He doesn't say, well, we got a few more chairs over here and a few more chairs over here. Uh, let's bring some more people into the sanctuary. No, he says, I've got that chair reserved. I got this chair reserved for Rick because he's got, I've got this part of his plan, right? I've got that chair reserved for Lucian because I've got him as a part of my plan to do this. I've got this chair reserved for Morgan and Jennifer because I have them as a part of my plan for that. He has a plan and a ministry and a task for every single person that he calls into the body. I believe that with all my heart. And he wants to lead us into that. And you know, when we get into that, the, f- the fulfillment of it is, is amazing. The fulfillment is better than you would get anywhere else. He's a king to be obeyed. The best part of that is he's a benevolent king who his subjects are all a part of his family. That's the best part of that. God is not here to fulfill our will. We are called into the body to carry out his. No, Joshua, I'm in charge of this. I'm the coach. I'm the offensive coordinator. You're the quarterback. I'm the one that's running this show. So God says, nope, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Joshua falls on his face in worship. You don't worship angels. You only worship the Lord. He falls on his face in worship. And then God says, all right, take your sandals off your feet because where you're standing is holy ground. You know, this is almost exactly the same thing that God said to Moses 40 years ago at the burning bush, right? Moses is out keeping his sheep and the burning bush, you know, he sees the burning bush and goes to look at it. And God says, hey, Moses, take your sandals off your feet because you're standing on holy ground. This is, this is the awesome thing about God. So think about this, right? How many times in the last 40 years, sitting around the wilderness at a campfire with nothing else to do, how many times did Joshua look at Moses and say, hey, hey, tell me about that, man. Tell me about that time that God came to you and told you to take your shoes off. Tell me about that again. How many times over 40 years did Joshua say to himself, oh man, I wish I had an experience just like that. I wish I had an experience where God just stepped to me and uh, stepped to me and, and gave me something, something supernatural like that. How many times did Joshua probably ask himself for that over the last 40 years? I think he probably asked himself, he asked, he prayed for that probably a lot. God had never given that to him because at those points, in the last 40 years, he didn't need to. Joshua didn't need it, at least not to the degree that he needs it now. At this point in Joshua's life, he needs it more than any other time in his life. And when he needs it the most, God shows up and gives it to him exactly the way that it would have meant the most for him. God meets us where we are to sustain us in his will for our life. You know, we were talking about, uh, you know, the American Underdog movie, um, Kurt Warner, I love football movies, you know, and uh, the story was, you know, really encouraging itself. <clears throat> football movies, you know. Um, anybody ever seen Rudy? I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen Rudy, right? You want to get me to cry? Put Rudy on. Seriously. <clears throat> so I can remember a handful of years ago when I was at a moment when I'm like, you know what, I just can't do this anymore. I can't do it, man. I don't know what you want me to do, God, but I'm not doing it. I, just, I can't do it, man. I'm broken. I'm at the end of my rope. I got a rope and, and there's nothing left. I don't know what you want me to do. I was at a moment where I was really in need. And I can remember, I don't know if, if Tracy was out of town or if she was asleep or, or what was happening, but I sat down uh, to watch TV. And I don't watch TV very often, but I'm flipping through the channels and all of a sudden Rudy is on. And it's, 
it's in the beginning of the movie. I'm like, oh, I love this movie. And so I sat and just watched it. And as you watch Rudy go through this, uh, go through this period, I mean, he's trying to play at Notre Dame, but he can't go to Notre Dame because his grades aren't good enough. So he's going to Holy Cross and he's trying to get his grades up high enough to go, but he keeps getting rejected and he, ke- he keeps doing push-ups and running with the, you know, with the janitor and all this other stuff that, you know, you know, all this other stuff that happens in a movie. He gets denied again, but he keeps working. He gets denied again, but he keeps working. He gets denied again, but he keeps working. And then all of a sudden, in the last opportunity he has, he gets into Notre Dame. And all of a sudden, he's on the football field, and he's getting battered by all these big Division I uh, scholarship players. And he's like, wow, this is just all. He's eating it up. He loves it. And in that moment, I'm watching this movie, and I'm like, this is exactly, this is exactly what I need to see right now. God knows me perfectly. He knows me better than I know myself, and he gives me exactly what I need in that moment. That's what he does to Joshua right now. He knows the situation that Joshua is, is in. He knows the weight of responsibility and the impossibleness, if that's a word, the, the impossibleness of, of the task that he's been given. And he says, you know what? It's okay. You're walking, <clears throat> you're walking after the way in which I have prescribed for you. I'm going to give you all you need to sustain you in that. God is good. We don't we don't sustain ourselves. We don't, we don't call ourselves. Joshua was not in, Joshua was not in the promised land because he decided one day to leave Egypt and go to the promised land. He's in the promised land because God called him to the promised land. He will be sustained in the promised land and conquer in the promised land because God will help him to conquer in the promised land. God is, God is good. God loves us and he gives us what we need to continue. So how do we follow God's leading? How do we walk with them? We follow what we do know. We don't know all the answers, but we probably know something about what he's called us to do. Maybe, you know, we've got, uh, like I say, we got all these folks around here with these sheet, uh, shirts on uh, looking for uh, people to help serve some of the needs of the church. Maybe you're feeling, well, there's a, I, I really feel like God wants me to, to serve at church, uh, but I don't really know what that looks like. You know what? If you walk out of here and go home and don't talk to anybody, you'll probably never figure it out. But if you stick around and you start talking to people and start going with what God has put on your heart to do some kind of service for him, then you know what? He'll lead you to where you need to be. He always does. So we walk in light of the revelation that we have been given, right? We walk in light of what we do know. We recognize that it's his will that we're following and not our own. And we recognize and we trust and have confidence that he will sustain us in exactly the way in which we need. Let's go to the Lord.